Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about the state of the current market and why long-term investors shouldn't be worried. Should Teladoc fear Amazon getting into its industry? And if we would invest in Robinhood ahead of its expected IPO? So on the last episode of Stock Club, we had a pretty robust discussion about NFTs and whether they were a fad or a viable investment opportunity. Rory, you were kind of on the fence about the future of NFTs, but Emmett, you were much more definitive on your position. For the benefit of anyone that might have missed that episode, I've actually asked our producer, Luke, to stick in a short clip from it here. So let's take a quick listen. Do either of you think that, you know, maybe it's a bit early to tell, but that in the future, NFTs could be another part of your investment portfolio, like stocks or real estate or, or something like that? No. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> no, I think it's a bubble. So, Emmett, after listening to that, calling NFTs a bubble, what, I, I believe you've updated your opinion somewhat. <laughs> well, you know, um, I'm in a privileged position to get feedback on everything I say and practically <laughs> everything I think. <laughs> um, so I was in, in the pure sense of the word, I was inundated after last uh, week's or fortnights ago stock club. And I'd like to read a prepared statement I've written by our legal team <laughs> <laughs> and the NFT Association of America. All right. Okay. I have done a U-turn because since the last stock club, I have had conversations with some of the best and brightest minds in business um, and in science about NFTs. And in fact, I just got off a one hour Zoom with my friend Declan this morning who even created a mind map and sent me the mind map to understand the absolute impact of NFTs. And uh, I don't have it here in front of me, but he, was exp- he used the mind map to explain uh, to me how, you know, Jack Dorsey used Ether to sell his first tweet, as we know. And, you know, he moved through a complete and thorough explanation of why, you know, his prediction that Square eventually will offer NFTs, you know, via smart contracts, via Ethereum. And, you know, it was one hell of an explanation. I have to say, I have to dive into it. And now I I have to say I'm far more informed, for example, on why Tidal was such a great investment. And I only wish I knew last week what I know this week, but there you have it. And I've done a U-turn. I actually am a believer and I'm not saying that because, so many smart people have contacted me but i can actually now see the practical application i've seen the light yeah. folks not everything <laughs> by nft <laughs> i think you should have just doubled down and be like no don't want to know <laughs> i'm delighted that you've uh, you've come around to everything i said after listening to other people tell it to you <laughs> yeah, he, he said he said so many other smart people Roy. that's a bit yeah. of a but do you know, like, do you ever, like, um, when you grow up with some and then you hear they're an outstanding success, you're like, them. So, like, <laughs> him. It's like when you find your brother has basically got the Nobel Prize for economics. You're like, that 
outrageous. Got a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I think Rory and I, at a socially distant level, and within five kilometers of our home, walked yesterday and we shared a lot of investment ideas and thoughts. And I was reminded, Rory, about how brilliant you actually are, Joyce. <laughs> From here on in. <laughs> From here on in, I'm going to ask you first. I'm okay. just wondering how much Rory paid you yesterday on that walk because your your tone has completely changed. But anyway, we'll move on. So after a stellar 2020, um, over the last few weeks, some investors have actually found out that stocks go down as well sometimes. Emmett, what's going on? I thought stocks only went up. Um, in the long term, they do, James, but you're right. And when you look at the S&P 500, the Standard Poor's 500, which is, as our listeners, or the vast majority of our listeners know, a ball of 500 big companies who dominate their different industries. Like yesterday at market close, it was just a shave below 4,000. So it was at 3,958. And its 52-week high was 3,983. So the S&P 500 is still floating at or very near its absolute all-time high since 1957. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners are like, yeah, but what's happening in my portfolio? And as I, I wrote in, in Horizon there about a week or so ago, we, we buy stocks with a with a beta greater than one, which means that when the stock market as a whole goes up, as growth investors, our stocks grow proportionately more, which means when the stock market takes a drop, our stocks drop proportionately more. However, when you kind of dive into the rationale of that you see the stock market for every down day it has it has a 2.55 up days so yeah. it stands to reason long-term investors should buy stocks with a beta greater than one but let's talk about what's happening at the moment because you know since time began there's always been well what's happening right now and we really truly advocate long-term buy and hold not to concern yourself too much with what's actually happening in the millisecond the day the week the month because because we are long-term investors, because it is absolutely proven, as in in the mathematical sense, that long-term investing works. But anyway, earlier this week, uh, a good few big-name stocks took a beating after a chap called Bill Wang, a fund manager and a former head of Tiger Management's family office, uh, had a huge big margin call. And it was forced the liquidation of billions of uh, dollars of stock uh, and I think it really hit major media companies like Discovery and Viacom yeah. and other such businesses. But basically, Wang's firm um, was forced to buy banks to sell $20 billion worth of shares. Yeah, and, and just, just to point out, that's what a margin call is. It's basically yeah, exactly. money borrowed from the yeah. bank. Your money borrowed, your lender says, here, you owe me that. <laughs> you give it yeah. back to me um, and forces the matter. So uh, he basically was forced to sell $20 billion. It's a big sell. Um, then banking giant Credit Suisse said that the volatility, you know, stemming from, from this liquidation event was going to hit their first quarter results. Okay, so let's just put, we're only putting microscope on this week because you asked the question. And then you, what you always hear when you hear a bank or a, like a, a stalwart in an industry say, this is going to hurt the quarter. There's this conversation about contagion. And then next thing, everyone is getting nervous. And, and you know, so this week we could see that stocks, particularly growth stocks, uh, took a, a beating in the first half of the week we're recording 
this podcast just before market opening on Wednesday. So I, I do not know what happens later today. We do not know as this podcast goes live on Thursday and Friday. And then there's other things in the backdrop a little bit. There's fears of inflation, which has driven a whole load of institutional investors uh, out of shares. There's, there's this conversation about rotation out of tech and into more traditional, defensive, older world, cyclical businesses. Uh, you know, so there's this kind of greater storyboard, which in the moment matters, because if you bought Lemonade um, shares and you're down 50%, it hurts. You log yeah. in, you look yeah. and you see a big minus 50. And I use that example. It's very pertinent because my son bought shares in Lemonade and he has only seen the good times. Like his, he has a 10 bagger portfolio, which is really, really something else for, for a young man. Um, and, and he, for the first time, learned the hard lesson that stocks go down. And I'm actually glad he learned the lesson. I never celebrate somebody losing, but don't forget you only lose when you sell. And Lemonade is no less business today than it was when he bought it. But the backdrop, which is the overall market, uh, has thumped growth stocks. So that's what's kind of happening out there, James. And, and those who are most zen, those who are like, I don't mind. I, I bought this with the year 2031 in mind are the ones who will win. And the worst decisions I've made in my life have all been sales when I was spooked. Yeah, well, that brings you on to the next question. We preach the, long, the virtues of long-term buy and hold investing quite often. But as you mentioned, when you see one of your stocks down 50%, it's, it's pretty sore. Um, have either of you, Rory, might come to you, any advice on you know, what people who are panicking right now can actually do to, to help themselves stick to that long-term mindset? the best thing to do most of the time is nothing uh there's you know i think we're at a moment right now where if you know if you started investing in march last year these are unnormal times for you because the stocks every stock you buy isn't going up 10 20 percent every week or every month every new stock of the month i publish isn't 40 percent up at the end of each month so if you've you know that that wasn't normal times these are more normal times sounds like excuses rory yeah um the it's just that's just not what a normal market environment is you don't typically buy a stock and see it go up to 300 percent over the course of a couple of months yeah this is how the market normally functions stocks go up sometimes they go down sometimes there's sector rotation as emmett mentioned and if you're buying stocks like a downturn's terrible unless you have a lot of money in your account <laughs> then it's great you know so it really depends on how you position yourself if you have a cash position the market turns in you can buy stocks that you loved at a cheaper discount if you don't have cash you know you still have stocks that you love in, in your portfolio if you believed in them for 10 years where they where they are two months later shouldn't really be a concern for you at all yeah no, sounds good um, so let's move on then and talk about one of the stocks that has definitely been hammered over the last few weeks, which is Teladoc. Teladoc has long been one of the best performing stocks in the My Wall Street shortlist, up more than fivefold since we picked it four years ago. But as I said, it's been enduring some turbulence recently, thanks in no small part to an announcement by Amazon that it plans to roll out its pilot telehealth service, Amazon Care, to employees across the US and even start offering the program to other employers. Amazon moving into your industry is kind of a double-edged sword for a lot of companies. On one hand, if Amazon wants to do the thing you're doing, it kind of proves the business case and probably tells you there's quite a lucrative market out there. On the other hand, you know, Amazon is a direct competitor and, you know, they're not a company you really want to go up against. Rory, how concerned do you think Teladoc should be about Amazon moving into this space? 
Little to no worry, to be quite honest. Um, really? Yeah, look, this the story is old as time, or at least as old as Amazon's been around. Anytime they even glance in the direction of another industry, investors get spooked. You know, and if you look at the world of retail, you can completely understand. You know, brick and mortar retailers like Barnes and Noble, Toys R Us, Staples, Radio Shack. These companies were pretty much wiped out. Not less like by e-commerce as a whole, mm. um, you know, with Amazon being the largest one. But there's plenty of examples where Amazon has failed to disrupt incumbents in other areas. I won't tell the Etsy story again. I'm sure listeners are sick of it. But it's simply not true that Amazon dominates every industry it enters. You know, the Fire Phone didn't kill Apple. Um, it didn't even kill Samsung. Uh, Amazon buying Whole Foods didn't kill Costco or Kroger or Walmart. You know, it. When it comes to healthcare, I think there is some reason for concern because. Amazon's great strength is that kind of operational excellence and that customer support, which are the kind of two things that you look for when it comes to healthcare. But let's pull back a second and look what actually has occurred here. Amazon had a pilot program that it launched about 18 months ago and part of for its own employees now, just for its own employees, part of which gave them access to telehealth services. Those telehealth services are now being rolled out to Amazon employees nationwide, with Amazon saying that they will offer this Amazon Care package to other to third-party employers. Now, they haven't announced anything in regards to the pricing of that, but the market's just kind of assuming because it's Amazon, they're going to undercut the incumbents. Mm. The first thing to note is that Amazon is targeting the employer market here, no, with no mention whatsoever of the payer market, which Teladoc is very strong in. The second is that te- healthcare is really complicated, and Amazon has already seen how complicated it is. Their joint venture with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan, which was called Haven, was wound up last year after failing to make any significant inroads. And that was three businesses with basically unlimited funds and some of the best minds in the, the business world. They couldn't, they couldn't get it together, and it just shows that scale and logistics are just—they're just, just not enough to penetrate the market entirely. So Amazon to this point has been dealing with its own employees, which is fine because when you're dealing with your own employees, you're essentially working within a network that you completely control. When you start moving outside that network, things become more complicated. They have to integrate with other companies' healthcare solutions that they already have. They have to navigate all the regulatory hurdles in every state that they end up doing that. Um, They need to develop relationships with existing health systems and existing health plans. you know, Teladoc, as I think uh, the market leader in the telehealth space, it has existing relationships with 50 health plans and 600 health systems. Um, so they're they're far ahead, right? Yeah. Um, they also have, you know, advantages in different things. So, example, Amazon has PillPack, which is great for getting your pharmacy prescriptions fulfilled and delivered to your door. Teladoc has an advantage in terms of chronic conditions, I would argue, thanks to that uh, acquisition it made last year with Livongo. So, I mean, the thing is, Amazon, it's not to say that Amazon's not going to succeed in this market. I'm sure they will do very well in this market. But I think an awful lot of investors get overly concerned with the idea of competition. And this yeah. this makes perfect sense because it's something that we all understand, right? It's one of the first things you learn about the world of business, the whole Coca-Cola, Pepsi dynamic. However, competition isn't just as simple as one company does well and therefore another company doesn't. That's... That's a zero-sum game. And in the world of business and the world of telehealth, most certainly, I don't believe is a zero-sum game at all. You know, The bigger picture here is that there's estimated to be, by 2040, 40 million Americans over the age of 80. That's double what it was in 2010. And with things like modern medicine, changes in lifestyle, that number is only going to increase over time. There, just, there simply isn't enough providers to deal with this increase in the current model. And... 
that's only one part of a massive system. It's not even considering things like chronic health care or, or mental health or counselling or primary yeah, care. Yeah. So there's so much opportunity in this space. The idea that Amazon is just going to come in and completely dominate it is outrageous and something that I like. You really just have to kind of laugh at, to be quite frank. What are your thoughts, Emmett? I know Teladoc is a stock in the Horizon portfolio as well. It is, yeah. And it is it is actually one of the stocks I've repeatedly invested in over the years. And if I had to sell off my whole folio and keep only five stocks, I'm absolutely certain Teladoc would be in it. And before I buy any share, I just kind of look at Fang or Fat Man as it's, it's become known lately. But well, I look at the giants of the digital world and I just wonder... Can these businesses destroy this stock, this business I'm thinking of buying overnight? Yeah. Like case in point, I looked very recently at great, great depth at a company called Matterport, which uh, creates a digital twin of your home, which is uh, effectively in a, a, a 3D photo of the interior of your home. And I, I really went to end level of research on it, ending up speaking with some of the C-level execs in there. And they have a very nice product. They seem to dominate their field. You can basically walk around your home and with your iPhone, snap and take photographs that are stitched together and do the rendering of the interior of a home, which is a growth area. However, I decided I wasn't investing. And after a a solid week of research, just thought, you know what? Apple can switch this functionality on overnight on their phone I'm not going to invest. Apple may never do that, but it was just one of their people said that they see Apple as a partner. And I was like, uh, maybe you do, but Apple don't regard anyone as a partner. <laughs> and they see it as a competitor or someone that they ignore. And they either decide they're going to buy you out or do what you're doing if they so choose. So taking that, and I look at uh, Teladoc and for all the reasons that Rory just explained, I don't see Amazon succeeding in the uh, telehealth space in the same way uh, as Teladoc have succeeded and will continue to grow. And even though, you know, Jeff Bezos has called, you know, Amazon is the best place in the world to fail. Like he's, he said that, you know, he, he's kind of instituted a culture where like quote unquote failure is acceptable you know, that, that, the, the footprints of those failures, and I, I hate using that word, are, are all over Amazon. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they launched an Instagram like kind of shopping platform called Spark in 2017. They had a restaurant delivery business um, called in 2015. Uh, I think, I think it was just called Amazon Restaurants. They have all the examples that Rory gave the phone, dash buttons, Amazon tickets, endless.com. They had a hotel booking website called Amazon Destination. They had, I mean, the list goes on and on. They had a platform for small and medium-sized businesses to set up their own store and start selling online directly to customers, which they shut down. They had Amazon Local, Amazon Wallet, Amazon Local Register, which was kind of like Square-like payment system. They had WebPay. They had, like, virtually all the businesses we admire, so not all of them, a whole lot of the businesses we admire today are giants today. Um, At one stage, Amazon had a look and went, maybe, because Jeff Bezos has instilled a culture of give it a shot. And, and, and I completely understand why people would get spooked. Hmm. Uh, like, oh no, uh, Amazon is coming for Teladoc. But the complexities of telehealth are far, far greater than a Zoom call between 
someone who is unwell and a qualified professional, it is extremely complex. And Rory yeah. touched on those complexities. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to be so, I suppose, glib as to say I'm not worried uh, in, in, in a dismissive way, but I'm not worried. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not worrying. As I said, if I had to reduce my folio to five, I'd keep Teladoc um, and I'd... Um, I'd live with the risk that Amazon might enter the space successfully, or sorry, have decided they're entering the space and might be a success. Yeah. And I suppose just to talk about Teladoc more widely then. So even before this Amazon announcement, Teladoc shares had been struggling. What's going on there? Do you think that's just part of the the kind of wider tech sell-off we've been seeing, Emmett? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do, James. I think, you know, every stock is informed every day by two factors. The microeconomics, in other words, its own story within its own ecosystem and competitors. And then the macroeconomics, which we touched on at the top of the podcast, Mm. which all things do with inflation. And I think between those two factors, which is, oh, no, Amazon are coming after us, couples with, you know, treasury bonds offering a better rate of return. Money is leaving some of the greatest businesses and, and, you know, we are, we are being handed a time machine. We're getting stocks at kind of a year ago prices. You know, a lot of yeah. the stocks we like. Um, I don't, uh, that's just the way it goes. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the system in which we are participating, but we're all going to be grown-ups here and we're not going to panic because panic results to bad decision-making. Absolutely. It got caught up in the uh, stay-at-home narrative as well as yeah. a lot of companies did you know um, there's a group of them a lot of them are in our showroom of companies of people just like oh they'll do well during a pandemic and won't do well when the pandemic's over which is yeah. a little simplistic for my liking but you know <laughs> you're right and you know for as much as we all want to get back to gigs and pubs and cruises and holidays and airplanes Nobody wants to go back to a doctor's waiting room because you can no. walk in there with a sore big toe and you're conscious of the fact that the woman or man opposite you might have influenza and you don't want that. <laughs> like, so we just, we all want to stay at home forever when it comes to our healthcare in acknowledgement that times we will need to go into the real world to get medical treatment. But I think it's 80, what did they say? 85% of cases can be dealt with via um uh, uh, over the internet I wish someone would tell Ireland that we don't need these stay at home stocks anymore because I'm looking around and I'm definitely still stuck in my house and it looked like I will be for the next few weeks anyway so let's move on then and we've had such a spate of recent IPOs over the past year that when we were actually planning this episode Rory you asked if there were any companies left in the world still to go public uh, well there is one pretty big one coming up on the horizon that I think is set to divide a lot of people it is of course Robinhood in what would probably be the biggest listing of the year Robinhood has reportedly filed documents with SEC with a view of going public over the next few months. Although nothing has been confirmed yet, it reports suggest that the company will list in the Nasdaq exchange and it could be looking at a valuation north of $40 billion based on its most recent private fundraise. Robinhood has become the go-to exchange for thousands of retail investors thanks to its user-friendly app and more importantly, its zero commission trading. However, over the past few years, the company has faced a lot of heat over claims that it allows novice investors to make trades that they don't fully understand, as well as the underhanded way it actually makes money from its customers. Also, the whole GameStop debacle at the beginning of this year really turned legions of users against the brokerage after it halted trading on some of the most volatile meme stocks. Emmett, I'm going to come to you first here. What are your thoughts on Robinhood going public? Um, is this another case of a company racing 
to hit the public markets when its key metrics are inflated by the events of the past year? Possibly, yeah. I, I mean, Robinhood has enough stakeholders, enough shareholders who invested early with a very explicit purpose of fueling this business to the stars. And for them, they need to see an exit point, which was probably decided very early on mm. as a flotation. So it's of no surprise to me that Robinhood is floating uh, opportunistic timing, perhaps. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, it's this is probably the product IPO most used by our listeners. Mm. So on the whole, right now, you, me and Rory are talking to a very initiated audience. And, and I should add that I have never used Robinhood yet. I've spoken with the founders on several occasions. So my perspective is completely lopsided. I don't know the product. I know uh, Vlad specifically, who's behind the business. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not shocking to me. They're IPOing. Um, I admire that they've built a $40 billion business. They said they, they've provided the most barrier to entry uh, for uninformed investors who want to have a shot at the stock market. And, and they now, as they say, have millions of users and the app has been called the most intuitive app ever. Um, clearly, whoever said it never tried my Wall Street. There you go. <laughs> um, but, you know, and then, and then of course, they, they did cause, they were a catalyst in the market. They, they, they are credited with, for having like uh, motivated Schwab to acquire Merry Trade. And yeah. you know, the market has changed as a consequence of Robin Hood, who have done something that was tried in the past, but done it at an extraordinarily uh, effective level. And then, um, and then so there's, there's a good side to Robin Hood, of course, this democratization story. And then there's a not so good side to the story, which, you know, is blocking the so-called meme stocks, you know, that were hyped, uh, you know, on Reddit and the likes, GameStop and AMC called it, and other, <laughs> other such businesses. And, you know, uh, and then there was some kind of reputational knock-on where people were saying they'd lost the trust of their traders yeah. and developed the trust problem and you know there was all this kind of stuff but for me i'm bringing it down to a single thing for me there's this we all have like a code in our lives of of moral principles or ethics or whatever you want to call it and they affect how we make decisions and how we lead our lives and you know we we, we you know we inherit our ethics and our principles from our parents or our guardians and the people we're surrounded by. And without elaborating, I will never invest in Robin Hood. <laughs> I will <laughs> never touch it. And I have, it crosses, um, but I, you have to, I'll, I'll refer back to, you know, my opener, my view is lopsided. I'm not a product user and I will never invest in Robin Hood, but it could end up being the greatest investment of our lives. So a bit like I'll never invest in, you know, a tobacco company because it crosses an ethical line that I just don't particularly, you know, that I, that exists in my life. I'm sure the reasons that I won't invest in Robin Hood don't exist in everybody else's life. I'm pretty certain yeah. of it, but I will tell you that it exists in my life. So uh, it is one of the very few companies that I have put a red X through. Don't care. Good luck to them. <laughs> you can tune in next week, Graham. It will recant his <laughs> Oh yeah, maybe this should be our Ferrari into a paid for podcast. <laughs> where we go deeper. What happened? What happened? And I'll be like, do you want to know what happened? I'm going to tell you what happened. Actually, folks, at the, end of the, at the end of the podcast, we need a button where they can click now and, and hear what happened. <laughs> All uh, the salacious details. You, you won't believe this story, folks. Best story ever. What do you think, Rory? Are you as definitive on Robin Hood as an investment opportunity? 
Uh, well, I think I think Robinhood's one of those companies that, when it comes to an investment, there's kind of more questions than there is answers, and a lot of that's because we haven't seen the financials yet. But yeah. you know, clearly Robinhood occupies incredible mind share in the world of investing, a lot of which is not necessarily positive, but it it definitely does. You know, people who don't even invest know what Robinhood is, mm. which is pretty spectacular. Um, it's obviously benefited massively from an uptick in retail investors, as as have we, I might add. But, you know, it's kind of self-fulfilling as well because they've also been behind this kind of uptick in retail investors. And I think one day in January, they reported some like 600,000 downloads of their app in yeah. one day. You know, however, it's kind of very hard to figure out value, where the value is with those customers, you know. If someone's downloading an app and putting $10 into GameStop shares and loses it and never invests again, it's not particularly a very valuable customer. And that does happen an awful lot in the world of investing. We see that, you know, we're in that we're in the industry, we know how, how that works. Then, as Emma says, a lot of questions over how it promotes risky investing behavior. There's been a couple of real horror stories. Um, and then the thing that kind of made it so popular, I suppose, the zero fees that's now been adopted by loads of other players like Schwab and TD Ameritrade and Fidelity. And then there's new competitors as well, like Square, Square's Cash App. You can invest through that. Social Finance is going um, public soon through back, I think, because that one of Shamat's ones. Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. So it, it's a crowded marketplace. It's gotten on the bad side of a lot of its customers in some respects. And... If, yeah, it, it it just seems like it, how much is that mindshare worth? Essentially, that's what you're you're trying to value. You're trying to value that its position in space because most of what else it offers is is uh, copyable or is it's out there in other forms. So um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what 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 their financials look like and and how they go about the IPO process as well. I've heard that they're looking at ways in, to let users by the IPO which regardless of what you think of the company I think it's a great thing to do and yeah. uh, so it's going to be an interesting an interesting IPO an interesting whole process and just, yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't put a big red X through them yet but maybe a smaller kind of asterisk to red X <laughs> <laughs> a smaller X but like speaking of Robinhood I think you know a lot of credit has to be given to them as you mentioned for really revolutionizing the idea of stock investing and make it very accessible and in many ways they kind of strike me as as Facebook you know Facebook's famous motto of move fast and break things and you know companies have to adopt this approach in in you know in disrupting industries but I suppose Emmett the problem is in the financial industry you you really have to be careful what things you break yeah, actually, I read a book, I think, about a year ago called uh, Blitzscaling, and I think it was written by Reid Hoffman. I'm not certain, but um, the the premise of the book, and I, I didn't particularly like the title of the book. There was some nice concepts in it, but the whole, the reason the book was called Blitzscaling was that it was modeled on the Blitzkrieg, which uh, was, if I recall, Reid Hoffman, if he was the author, explains that, uh, you know, during World War II, the German army advanced into new territory territories at a pace and rate previously never seen before and that yeah. you know where up to that point armies would retract and refuel and kind of feed their troops and then push forward they push forward and forward and forward and forward and this i guess coined the phrase blitz scaling as the book calls it and when i read the book i it was this story in my mind of robin hood which was grow at all costs and will will backward engineer processes and that's and i'm not saying that that was entirely right i don't know anything about robin hood's 
processes, to be honest. But I do know that uh, it did push forward and a relentless growth and anything uh, other than the happy path wasn't given consideration. And and I completely agree with you, James, um, uh, that they, you have to admire what they did. They have opened up the stock market to an entire generation. And you can only hope that those who might have made a mistake in the earliest in the springtime of their investing life have learned from it. And thanks to Robin Hood opening the investment door to their lives, that they go they go on to grow up and have some great investments that sit inside a Robin Hood portfolio for 20 years, because that's really the key to creating generational wealth, finding great businesses, buying into them and holding with the, onto them for the longest term possible. Absolutely. Well, speaking of revolutionary stock market apps, let's talk about what's going on in my Wall Street at the moment. Do you like that plug there, Emmett? <laughs> um, so our new stock ten out of ten. That was great. Did you hear that, Flad? <laughs> <laughs> so our new stock of the month selection is coming to my Wall Street on Monday, April fifth. Rory, I won't ask you for a three-word pitch this time, but can you give us a hint? It's a stock that we've been talking about a lot recently. <laughs> okay, on on the podcast. Um. Yes, that well, can only be one, really. But anyway, <laughs> is it the one we always talk about, Rory? But if for once, I actually won't say it. No more clues. No more clues. <laughs> Not taking any more questions at this time. Um, so, if you want to find out what that mystery stock Rory is talking about, don't don't forget you can sign up for your free trial of My Wall Street app by just clicking on the notes into the or sorry. <clears throat> By clicking on the link in the notes for today's show don't forget as well that members of my wall street community also get exclusive access to the stock of the month podcast in the my wall street app as well this is where you can listen to me and rory chat about the most recent stock of the month selection in more depth and answer any questions you might have about it let's move on then to jargon busters so the first question is for you emmett i think this one has come from the webinar you ran last week on wild cards and world changes as part of the horizon um, platform. When you talk about your portfolio, you often mention about building a full position in a company. What exactly do you mean by a full position and how can other investors figure out what a full position is for themselves? Okay, so a full position is a targeted minimum amount of dollars you intend investing in a stock. Yeah. So if I said, I love Teladoc and our, our listener decided they like Teladoc, they might go, yeah, I'm going to invest in Teladoc. So the question arises, how much do I invest? And I think when you're setting out on your investing life, it's important to start by understanding what does, what's the target minimum you'll invest in the stocks that you like. And a way to go about that, I would suggest is, because obviously it varies. It depends on your background and how much disposable income you have, or, you know, are you Starting with wealth, you're starting Sorry, from Emma. a modest place. You keep saying minimum. Do you mean maximum? No, because if you take it like, um, I mean, a, tar- a full position is a targeted minimum. It doesn't mean that you're going to stop there. Um, and okay. I could argue either, I could argue either you're right. And I know why you're asking that question because full implies you're, you've, you've yeah. filled the whole thing. But if, if, for example, you sit down, you go, I'm going to be a stock investor. And in the next year, I'm going to invest $12,000, which would be a hell of a starting position. But I'm using simple math as I'm about to explain and then you go, right, well, I'm going to buy 12 stocks. Um, as you can see where I'm going. So you kind of go, right, I'm going to put a thousand books into 12 different companies. So my target full position is a thousand books. So you might decide, right, I'm going to buy 500 books worth of uh, Teladoc today, and then I'll leave the other 500 for later. And that 
the price of Teladoc will rise or fall, of course. And then at a later point, you, re you invest again with the other 500 books. And then you have a target full, you, your full position. You've, you've invested a thousand books. Now, imagine as time goes by, um, you've filled out your portfolio, you've 12 stocks, you've invested a, a grand in each of them. Um, well, very often the best stock to buy is one already in your portfolio, which is coming back to the point you just raised, Rory, and you might come back to Teladoc. So the, the, the concept of a full position, uh, yeah, you could argue it's a, it's a target minimum or maximum, but yeah. in this example, I'm saying that it's the minimum you're going to invest to feel you've gone at it. Now you might go back again. Yeah. And sometimes you double down or I'm going to go for a 2x position or I'm going to have a double my full position. And that's all just, you know, phraseology. But at the bottom line, a full position is the target amount of money you intend to invest in each of the stocks to feel you've really gone for it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next question then, Rory, is for you. So over the past year or so, Cathy Wood and her company, ARK Invest, have become extremely popular amongst the investing community, not least for the outsized performances of her ETFs last year, but also the outrageous price targets she's put on companies like Tesla. What's your opinion on ARK Invest and the new trend of investors blindly following Wood's every move? It's hard not to. I mean, like you have to respect Cathy Wood in this industry. Look what yeah. she's achieved over... Um, over the past couple think, of years, I think all of the ARC ETFs had more than one hundred percent growth in the in in twenty twenty. Yeah, I think that's. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, look, she's uh, clearly a very talented investor. She has a particular strategy, which is highly aggressive, um, and focuses a lot on the idea of disruption. Uh, and looks at companies in, diff in in quite different ways. If you think about a company like Twitter, for example, you wouldn't necessarily call them a major disruptor, whereas whereas they would look at them like a major disruptor. Um, and yeah, the, the, that strategy has paid off very well for them over the years. And a lot of people who have laughed at Cathy Wood over the years yeah. have ended up eating crow pie because the insane price target she puts on certain stocks have, I mean, not always made it to those levels, but definitely gone way beyond what a lot of people would thought was possible. Um, the, the issue I have with with ARC in general, not ARC themselves, but more kind of the media portray of ARC is that uh, there's an awful lot of individual investors who are trying to follow along on a day-to-day -day basis of what ARK is doing. So literally going on Twitter and, and finding out what stocks ARK bought today and what stocks they sold today. And that's a terrible thing for an individual investor to do because you're trying to take what is essentially a kind of fund strategy into an individual portfolio, which will, will never work and will leave you decimated in terms of fees yeah. and 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 trading trading fees and and you're just not you're not operating on the same level you don't understand how the fund is working behind the scenes in terms of the way they hedge the way they position their portfolio so that's not something that individual investors should be focusing on if you want to look at the kind of cumulative moves that arc has made over the course of a month let's say that's you know again it's interesting but not something you should be taking full actions on um and certainly not something you should be taking full actions on on a daily basis um but definitely you know follow kathy wood on twitter follow uh some of the analysts that she has on twitter they're very insightful people and um people you should learn from yeah and i believe they actually just recently launched a space etf as well which 
funnily enough, has companies like Netflix and uh, stuff in it too. So interesting yeah, to watch that. I, th- I saw that. I think they might have stretched themselves a bit on the space. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Um, okay, so let's move on to our elevator pitch then to finish out today's show. So I'm giving you guys a pretty easy one today. I want you to just pitch me an under-the-radar stock that you're researching or keeping an eye on at the minute. Rory, I'll come to you first. So a company I've been looking at for the past couple of months is, I think it's under the radar. I don't know what the definition of under the radar is, but I certainly haven't seen a lot of people talking about it on financial Twitter. Is a company called Encino. Uh, the ticket symbol is N-C-N-O. And Encino, what first got me interested in Encino was the fact that they kind of have a couple of similarities with another business in our showroom called Viva Systems. Uh, Viva Systems is a CRM platform for the life sciences industry, which is partly owned, which is built on Salesforce and partly owned by Salesforce. And Encino is, it has certain similarities with uh, Viva in terms of it does pretty much a similar job for the banking industry. So for the kind of old school brick and mortar banking industry that we all know is going down the toilet right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, so again, they are built on the Salesforce platform. They're partly owned by Salesforce and they have software that helps them with customer origination and, and getting loans out and creating accounts for people. And it's a business that IPO'd middle of last year, unlike a lot of IPO companies that didn't skyrocket in value it hasn't gone 4x over the last 12 months it's actually down on its IPO price but still trading at a relatively high multiple in terms of its price to sales Uh, however you know digging around asking a couple of people the kind of scuttlebutt about the company is that the banks love it it's a it's a solution that they're all or a lot of them are looking at it ones who have have used it are, are are very happy with it and uh, it's a business that I think could potentially be added to the showroom at some point. So that's what I'm keeping my eye on. Cool. So that company again is called? It's called Encino and the ticker symbol is NCNO. Cool. Sounds good. Emmett, what company are you looking at at the minute? Yeah, I like Encino as well, actually. Um, so snap on that front. Well, below the radar, under the radar, there was one, uh, I had a call during the week with a friend of mine in America, Chad Ferguson, who uh, I know for many years, and he's a wonderful stock investor. And um, we were swapping ideas, as as you do when you eventually get into a flow with a conversation with a friend who's into it. And um, he, he pitched a stock to me, which I, it is below the radar. It was very below the radar for me. It's a micro cap stock, so immediately it's risky. Mm. And um, I'm very, very early in my research of the business. Uh, by no means am I as acquainted with it as as Rory is with Encino. And it's called Curiosity Stream. And Curiosity Stream's ticker is C-U-R-I. And Curiosity Stream was founded by the guy who founded the Discovery Channel. And, okay. uh, and actually, when Rory and I were chatting yesterday, uh, as someone, Rory, who's going through a documentary binge, what's your, what's your challenge this year, uh, Rory, to watch a documentary one a week, is it? Yeah, I'm watching a documentary once a week. Doing well, great good. so far. Yes, actually, that's a conversation unto itself. But either way, Curiosity Stream is, for all intent and purposes, uh, or at least it wishes to be a documentary Netflix, but it is um, now let's not get too caught up in analogies or sorry, comparisons <laughs> with Netflix. It's 20 bucks a year um, for its HD package. So it's a very, very inexpensive service. It's a streaming service of documentaries. When I look through their content library, the vast, vast majority of it is the kind of stuff 
that you wouldn't, you know, really watch to be perfectly frank, but they do seem to have some very good documentaries. Um, so those into their documentaries um, and willing to drop 20 books a year would do so in curiosity stream. It's growing fast. They, they have a kind of 10 books a month uh, package to watch their documentaries in 4K, uh, which is like 70 books a year to watch 4K. So they, it's a business that's growing. It has a niche. It's founded by someone who has history with the Discovery Channel. Uh, as far as I can see, he owns more than half the shares at the moment. So uh, the business's decisions fall entirely at his, to his pleasure. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in it. And it's growing fast. And I think it might just be a very interesting small cap business, super below the radar at the moment. Um, but revenue is growing fast. Uh, earnings or bottom line profit, not so, um, as you'd expect in the growth phase, but uh, interested. I am interested. Yeah, sounds like a good one. Rory, you must check them out for us. Come back with a report. We'll do full, uh, yeah, report on whether I would watch any of the documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, now that's something. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is none. I'm going to lose interest. That, that, that's surely a business expense, Rory, isn't it? $20 a month. <laughs> Like New Year's resolutions don't fall under company expenses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and James, it's 20 bucks a year. It's not 20, oh, 20 bucks, bucks a month. Year. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So it's really cheap. You can probably stretch it out, Rory. Um, so that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain in the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. Or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review for us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.